So it is Father's Day. We are walking through the book of Luke, and I want to talk about a great word for dads today, authority, right? Dads have authority. When your kid says, why do I have to do that? Whoever said amen, love it. (laughs) When you told your kids to do something, and they said, why do I have to? The best answer is, because I said so. So today, we're going to talk about authority, but two other words, alliance and allegiance. But I thought you'd, you'd like that word, authority. But actually, it's not a very good word today. We don't like the word authority unless we're using it about ourselves. So today, the idea of authority and someone having authority over you is not very attractive or popular. So why in the world would we want to talk about Jesus having authority over us? Well, that's what we're going to deal with today, because he does, and he is our authority. So we're going to read through Luke chapter 20, parts of Luke chapter 20 in sections today, and we're going to talk about authority Alliance and allegiance. So let me read Luke 20, verses 1 to 8 for you here this morning. Jesus has come into the city. It's his last time in the city. We're getting pretty close to the actual crucifixion, the arrest and uh, betrayal, arrest, crucifixion of Jesus, and of course his resurrection. But in verse 20, after he has cleaned house in the temple and he's made all these people mad, This is what happens. One day Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple. And the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the elders came to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? And I love his answer. Let me ask you a question first. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? He's talking about John the Baptist. Did his authority to baptize people come from heaven Or was it merely human? So they talked it over among themselves. You can see this happening, playing itself out. They're in their little huddle. There's probably quite a few of them. And they're like, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they finally replied to Jesus, we don't know. I love it. And Jesus responded, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Just, I love the comedy in this, and I love the power in it. And verse 2 is such a, such a key verse here, where they turn to Jesus and they say, by what authority do you think you're doing these things? Who gave you the right? Who do you think you are? to come in here and to disrupt our comfy world. We've created this space. We've created this system. We're very happy with the way things are. We like how life is playing out. Who are you to mess with what we've become so comfortable with? Give us your sign of authority. And, and of course, Jesus has none of this. And he knows they don't really care about what authority he's doing this. They're more ripped off about the fact that he is disrupting their comfy world. 
than their system. And he knows that even if he told them by what authority and showed them, which he's been doing all along, they are not going to receive it. So he simply asks them the question that they can't answer. You're religious people, and John is here doing amazing things, but you won't accept him. So if you won't accept him, you're probably not going to accept me. And he kind of pigeonholes them because he knows they're not really interested in the answer to their question. What they're really saying is, we don't like what you're doing because you're disrupting our world. You are, you're messing with everything that we've gotten really good at. You're messing with our comfort levels. You're messing with our rhythms and our daily habits and the hierarchy and structure that we've created in life for ourselves. See, we're quite happy being our own authority. Thank you very much. And Jesus is just shoving all that away and saying, you need to understand who I am. I wonder if we still do this today with Jesus. Maybe in our, in our secret lives where we just find ourselves sometimes, maybe we're not saying it out loud in our prayer time because we would never pray that way to God, but we kind of secretly think, what are you doing messing with my world? I like the way things are. So who do you think you are to come in and try screwing things up? Buzz off. See, we like authority when it applies to ourselves, but the idea of having someone with authority come over us is a very difficult thing to comprehend. And the younger you are, the more difficulty you have with a meta-narrative and someone having authority over you because you are your own boss. You make your own life. You charge, and you can do whatever you want. And unfortunately, that is a message that doesn't work out well in reality. And I think what Jesus is inviting people to realize, these religious leaders, is that if you would only understand who I am, you would not be asking that question. See, I think the more you understand who Jesus is, the more comfortable you will be in receiving his authority in your life. And I don't just mean knowing about Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's God, so he has to be over us. That's not what I'm talking about. There are lots of people who have known about God in this universe and throughout history that have no interest in God actually telling them what to do with their lives. But the more you know who Jesus is, the more willing you are to open yourself up to him and saying, okay, I'll trust you. Let's walk a little bit here. That's a very hard thing to do. Even for, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus most of our lives, the idea of still trusting him further in and further up into his life is something, a decision that we must make every single day. That's this idea of authority and what's going on, I think, in this passage. That leads us to this next word, alliance. Alliance. Alliance is like a partnership. The definition is it's, 
It's a union formed for a mutual benefit. And Jesus tells a story which actually has another tone of warning or judgment in it. But the idea is that there's an invitation for alliance. So let's read the next part in chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Now Jesus turned to the people again, and he told them this story. You remember, like, throughout the 10 chapters, from chapter 9 all the way through, Jesus is talking to the crowd or to the religious leaders or to his disciples, and Luke just kind of mixes them all around, and we understand that even though he's addressing one group, the other groups are still around. And so he's not just speaking to the one group. He's speaking to everyone who's in earshot. So now Jesus turned to his people again, right after this confrontation with the religious leaders, and he tells the people a story. Here's the story. A man planted a vineyard, and he leased it to tenant, tenant, farmer, tenant farmers. Who knew that was such a hard word to say, tenant? He leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. This was a very normal thing to do. But the farmers attacked the servant. They beat him up, and they sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. Well, what will I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I will send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. You can see where this is going. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. You kind of think, like, they're not the smartest people. You're not part of the family. If you kill the son, there's other people that are going to inherit this land, not you. But anyway, so they're not so smart. So Jesus asked this question at the end of the story. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? And then he answers it right away. I'll tell you. He will come and he will kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. These are great bedtime stories for your kids. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. So they're, they're getting agitated at this story. And then Jesus looked at them and he said, then what does this scripture mean? This scripture that you know so well. The stone the builders rejected has now become the capstone. And everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. So the teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the people's reaction. I love how Jesus uses these stories to just get right to the heart of the matter. And I think the story is a reminder of the fact that God wants us to align ourselves with him, that there is an opportunity to have an alliance with God. And here's another story yet again where Jesus says, there's a guy, he's powerful, he ruled, he owned this land, and he leaves. And this isn't the only time that Jesus has used this story about an absent ruler. Chapter 19, which we just looked at, is the 10 servants that he gave um, uh, some money to and said, invest it. And then he leaves, and then he comes back. 
Um, in chapter 16, you've got the shrewd manager, and there's a sense that the owner is absent and the manager is working in his place. In chapter 12, you've got Jesus telling a story about a homeowner and a burglar. And when the homeowner comes back, and you've just got this idea of Jesus telling these stories again and again to remind people that even though it feels like God is gone, that God is absent, he hasn't left you alone. And these stories are a reminder of how easy it is for us to be fooled into thinking it's all up to us. It's all on me. I have to do it. I have to figure it out. We've got to come up with our own plan. We need to make things work the way we want to see them happen because God has left the building. And so theologically, we talk about this idea of the transcendence of God, and that just means simply that God is out there. He's removed. He's beyond us. And these stories are a reminder that while there's a sense of the transcendence of God, there's also what theologians call the imminence of God, that he is near, that he is close, that he hasn't left, that he's with us, and that God is always giving us gentle reminders and opportunities to partner with him, to align ourselves with him. But the reality is this. Life distracts us, doesn't it? Don't you find life distracting? Distracting from what? Distracting from sometimes the most real reality that we could ever experience, and that is partnering with God, being in union with God. And we're distracted into thinking that it's up to us to pursue our own self-realization, to become self-aware and the heroes and the champions of our own story, that if we don't do something, everything's going to fall apart. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's just continually reminding people, largely through stories, that all the things you're chasing after and worrying about and wondering about are, are often a distraction keeping you from the very thing you need most. And that is just simply to turn yourself to a God who is inviting you into something so beyond what you could ever imagine as you begin to follow him and pursue life under the authority of Jesus. And there's this cool thing that God does throughout history, and that's this. He doesn't hold himself as an authority over us and say, okay, everything I do, I'll move my fingers and you guys be the marionettes. And I'll just tell you what to do and show you where to go. But throughout the biblical story, what you see God doing is saying, yes, I'm the creator, I've created all this, but I want you to reign with me. So Adam and Eve are put in the garden, and what are they asked to do? They're asked to care for the garden. They're asked to rule and reign over creation in partnership with God. And, of course, that gets screwed up. So then throughout the, the Hebrew Bible, you have the story of Abraham and the story of Israel, where over and over again, God invites a person or he invites a nation, and he says, let's do this together. Because God is not a one-man show. And maybe that surprises you. Because when you get to the book of Revelation, 
which is all about the return of Jesus coming to finally set the world right, at the very end, guess what God does? He invites us to reign with him, to be in alliance. And so in this story, when he's telling the story about these not-so-smart farmers, not that farmers aren't smart, just these ones are kind of dumb and thinking if they kill the son, somehow they're going to get the estate. I like the irony of that. I'm saying that we have one farmer in our congregation, so, and I said that just for him, James. So, Verse 15 and 16, Jesus tells a story. They kill the son, you know, and you see how the story's playing out. The tenant farmers, God sends his messengers to say, hey, it's time to, to reap the harvest. That's the prophet's. And they just continually ignore the prophets. This is the biblical story being played out in short form in Jesus' own little story. And then he says, I'll send my son. It's a reference to himself. And then he says this in verse 15 and 16. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to those farmers? (laughs) I'll tell you. He will kill them. And then he will lease the vineyard to others. Now, you might get caught up in the fact that, you know, Jesus is telling a story about the owner killing the farmers. And you think, oh, that's so violent. We talked about some of that last week. You remember, Jesus is telling a story in a cultural setting that makes sense to everybody. Jesus is not endorsing violence. But I don't want you to get caught up in the fact that the farmers are going to get killed by the ruler. Because if you do, you'll miss the last part of that verse. He will lease the vineyard to others. He will lease the vineyard to others. God is not a one-man show. If they won't partner with him, he will find others who will. If the religious leaders won't work with Jesus, God is going to find others who will. If we won't partner with God, he will find others who will. He always does. There's an invitation for us to understand who Jesus is and be comfortable with his authority over us, but also for us to partner with him because God is wanting us to work with him in this world. And then there's one more example here, or another example that Luke's giving us that moves from authority to alliance, but now we're talking about allegiance. And it's this this incident of about who do we pay taxes to? and thus the coins. So let's look at verse 20. These are the the religious leaders that are getting really ticked off. And now, watching for their opportunity, they sent spies pretending to be honest men. And they tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he could arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and you're not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he saw through their trickery, and he said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer, and they became silent. So alliance is a mutually formed union that benefits 
people. Allegiance is actually giving your support to someone who's a superior over you or to a group who is superior over you. And here's these religious leaders coming to Jesus, not wanting to form an allegiance, but actually wanting to kick him down and to stop this growing authority that he is gaining. Certainly, they don't want to partner with him, and they're certainly not going to give themselves to him. So they think, okay, Let's trap him. And these are the people who come across as being very pious. These are the people who who are shiny plastic people. Everything, they do everything right on the outside. And if you looked at them, you'd think, oh, what lovely people. And they want you to think that. You need to be just like me. You ever met someone like that? If you haven't, maybe it's you. And so, trying to keep the facade of being pious, of being a group of people that they're under Roman rule, but they want everyone to think that they hate it, but they're not going to jeopardize Israel because if you push Rome around too much, they're going to kick the snot out of you, figuratively speaking. And so they asked Jesus this question. Who do we give taxes to? It's just so great that 2,000 years later, we still hate taxes. And so Jesus answers them. He says, hey, do you have a Roman coin? Whose image and title are stamped on that? Caesar's, they replied. Let's look at this coin up close. That's this coin right here that I have in my hand. It's a coin I got when I was in Jerusalem this year. And this coin is the Emperor Constans. It's from about AD 350, so it's about 1,700 years old. And he was the third son of uh, Constantine the Great, the emperor that kind of is blamed for establishing Christianity as the state religion. And so Jesus says, hey, do you have a coin? And they're like, sure. Whose image is on it? Here's here's the thing. They're trying to trap Jesus, and these are people that are saying, we don't like the Roman rule, but we got to be careful, but we're very pious, and we're not going to give in to Rome. And Jesus is saying, "Do do you have a coin? Of course they have a coin. They all have coins. They all have money. And on that money, there's an image of the emperor. And in Jesus' day and age, um, 300 years before this, the coin also would have had an inscription on it that was short form, which would have said that this is the emperor, the, the son of the divine one. And so these pious people seem quite content being part of a religion that says you'll have no images other than God and you'll worship only God. They don't mind having coins that have an emperor's image that says this is the divine emperor on it. And he's already revealing their hypocrisy. Do you have a coin? Yeah. Why do you have a coin if you're so religiously pious and you want everyone to think that you're not going to give into Rome? You seem quite content to use Rome when it's convenient to you. And so that, that wording, whose image or whose picture is on it, this is the, the word where we get uh, another word, icon. So in Greek, it would be akon is, is the, the image 
And it's where we get our word icon. If you know the iconography, if you look at Eastern Orthodox religions, and even uh, in Catholicism some, there are lots, there's lots of imagery. And that's where we get our word icon. And an icon is an exact image or an exact representation. So Jesus is saying to them, if you've got a coin, whose image is on the coin? And they all know the answer to that question. The emperor's image is on the coin. So look at what Jesus says next in verse 25. Well, if the emperor's image is on the coin, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, for, for a while, you might have heard somebody say, well, this is where you get separation of church and state because Jesus says, give to the government, what belongs to the government, and give to God what belongs to God. That's why you have separation of church and state. Unfortunately, that's actually, I think, a fairly modern interpretation of this verse. Because that wouldn't have been what the original hearers understood when Jesus was talking. And a good way to understand the Bible is that it can never mean what it never meant. So if it didn't mean that for them, it probably doesn't mean that for us today. Jesus is not saying separate church and state. He's going way beyond this. He is showing actually where their true allegiance needs to be. So in money, even our own money, our own coins, there's an image of a ruler on it. And technically, if the image of the ruler is on the money, then it belongs to the ruler. So this belonged to Constance, and in Jesus' day, it would have been the emperor at that time. And so Jesus is saying, if his image is on it, then it belongs to him, give it back. And then he follows up with the saying, and give to God what is God's. And the people there who are devoutly Jewish followers would have understood something really key. That God made humanity in his image. We are little icons, representations of God. And if Caesar's image is on that coin, then it belongs to Caesar. All of it, every coin with his image on it is his. So give it back. And every human being who bears the image of God belongs to God, including Caesar. That's a profound statement. If everything already belongs to God, including you, then why not give yourself fully to him? Justo Gonzalez is a Cuban scholar, and he writes this. When we place ourselves within this passage, we should not see here a call to give part of our allegiance to the state and part to the church. It is rather a call to give our entire allegiance to God and then shun compromises that make it easier to live in the present order without really questioning or challenging it. If everything already belongs to God, then why not give yourself fully to him? We are very good at 
compartmentalizing our lives, right? We go to work, we're the work person. We're at home, we're dad or we're husband or wife or brother, sister, whoever we are, and we can compartmentalize our lives. And for each of us, there's probably part of your life that is like the private space. Nobody knows about this. This is my little room. Everything in here is for me and me alone, and nobody needs to know about it, including God. And we fool ourselves into thinking that we've kept him out of that. And I just wonder, with this example of the coins, with Jesus saying, if God's image is on you, then you belong to him. So why not give yourself fully to him? And I find myself wondering, what part of your life are you trying to hold back from God? Because if you're holding back part of your life from God, then you're likely missing out on some incredible experiences with Jesus. And you're probably still wrestling with a life that feels incomplete and maybe even miserable. Because you think God can't have this part. And God is just simply saying, my image is all over you. Why don't you just understand that? And accept that. So I want to ask you to do one thing for me today. It's really easy. Just ask yourself this question. What part of my life have I been keeping from God? It's easy. What part of my life have I been keeping from God? I don't know how you're going to answer that question, but I can assure you of this. When you partner with Jesus, you're right where you need to be. When you allow him to be your authority in life because you understand who he is more and more, when you align yourself with him because God is always going to share his authority with someone, And when you're able to fully give yourself to him, then you are right where you need to be. And you'll be able to experience a deeper, richer, more complete life. For you and those who need you. In the beginning, you created us, male and female. You created us in your image. Every single one of us in this room bear your image, God. We belong to you. In your mercy and grace, Allow us the courage to move towards that reality more and more.
Amen.